0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There's multiple people on the ground, Central. We need buses
1: from Houston all the way down to Chambers. I got four or five people on the ground. We need buses all the way up to Houston, Central. I'm an issue with my transportation. We have our people pinned. One Co. Central Activator Level One. Co. So we got we got multiple casualties. This is a mass casualty situation here, watch Street. They thought you guys further on. I say, guys, people stop
2: transmitting. W F A N. W F A N F M. New York. And good morning, everybody. Well, I guess those sounds from the New York City Police Department's radio communications from this past week put everything in perspective. Tuesday afternoon, October 31st, Halloween afternoon, the terrorist attack, terrorist incident on West Street um, here in lower Manhattan. Not that terribly far away from where we are physically right now either, by the way. And it gives one pause. The issue is whether or not, or exactly, I should say, what one does after that pause. Of course, this is the day that the New York City Marathon takes place, and to say there's an extra level of security surrounding that is always an understatement, but especially this year, those who seek to protect us are on alert, especially after last week's incident and, of course, the claim of responsibility coming from Islamic State or ISIS. And good morning, I'm Bob Solter. Um, first of all, it's nice to be back with you um, and my thanks to um, Richard Neer for um, covering the shift last week. Um, I had some family business to take care of that was not pleasant, shall we say, involved death. And um, I was glad that Things were able to be covered here. We have a busy program today in studio with us in the first portion of our show, and he'll be with us up until our update for the 640 time slot, is a criminal defense attorney and founder of Wagner Law Associates, which is based here in New York City. His name is Brian Wagner. Now, Brian is also a former senior prosecutor for the district attorney's office in Brooklyn. It's nice to have you join us. Thank you very much, Bob. And I should also mention the fact you're somebody who's listened to WFAN on occasion over the years, too. Absolutely. (laughs) Welcome to the fan. Thank you. Uh, I guess in beginning this discussion, let me ask you for your reaction as somebody who's been on both sides of the courtroom um, upon hearing this. And then there's another special twist in this because you know the area where this took place very well.
3: Absolutely. I think my first reaction as a former prosecutor and as now a criminal defense attorney is let the facts play out and let the investigators do their job. The NYPD, this is not going to come as a surprise to you, is one of the absolute best law enforcement agencies in the world. And you hear it on that radio run that radio between police officers, immediately they're calling for a level one. That is all units respond across all boroughs. Right. That's aviation, that's EMS, that's the commander for all of Manhattan South. It, they go into action so quickly and they investigate and they send their best to do that. And so that's my initial reaction when that occurs. And
2: when we have the talk... And, you know, this comes through relatively quickly now. In the post-911 era, people raised the issue of, was this terrorism? Now, there were some initial reports um, because there was confusion as to exactly what was taking place. Some people, if I heard this correctly, thought that this might have been some sort of a road rage incident as well. But then... It seemed like just by the sheer nature of what took place, it became very apparent that this was something that was planned terrorist act. Yeah. The definition of terrorism is a small group of
3: individuals or one individual that's trying to create terror to a larger group. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't have to be any religion. It doesn't have to be any location. It is just by that definition. In this case – this is a individual who is trying to send a broader terror message to a larger group and that that's what makes this terrorism it's not his religion it's nothing else
2: but simply that when we look at the response here in new york city the natural one of the natural reactions is also to look at what occurred and you know in a way It seems like this was months ago, but it really wasn't what took place in Las Vegas, which horrified uh, people in this country. Is it fair to compare it with the response to the Vegas shootings?
3: I don't know if it's fair or not, but I think the question is fair. I think asking is the Las Vegas incident also fitting within that definition of terrorism, mm-hmm. I think that's a fair question. Is that individual's shooting at innocent victims repeatedly? It, what message is he trying to send to a larger society? And that's not by any means you or I endorsing that message. By certainly not. But what we're saying is, does he have a larger message that he's trying to send, other than just I like violence? If there is a larger message, I would I would
2: think it would fall under the definition of of terrorism. Now, I have to ask you, as a, a, a former prosecutor, as a criminal defense attorney, is it is it possible? Because we often in this country will also try to some people will try to understand the, the motivation of someone who's carrying out an act like this or acts like this. Is there any way to possibly understand this? Well, you're never going to fully
3: understand someone else, what they're thinking. And we talk about that on summations all the time. You know, what is someone's intent? Mm -hmm. You don't know what their intent and what their motive is. But you could use circumstantial evidence and other evidence to figure that out. Often ways, the way you do it is, what are they posting on Facebook, Instagram, social media? What are they, if they're incarcerated, what are they saying on their phone calls when they're doing that? Also, going back. That little cell phone that you have in your hand, that is the most, that is one of the best insights into who that person is and what he or she is thinking. And so who are they text messaging? Who are they calling? What are the conversations? Because all of that gives you an insight into who that person is, what he or she believes and what they are thinking, and also what they value. And all of those things allow you to further extrapolate and further think about what a person's motivations and intents are.
2: What about this use of social media by people who are conducting basically criminal activities? I mean, that, that doesn't seem to be one of the brightest moves of all time. It, it is not.
3: I, I tell my clients always do not post on social media. And as a prosecutor, I loved it when people posted on social media for that very reason, because it's almost a bravado that for example, if you're in a gang, you can't help but saying, look at me, I'm strong, I'm tough because I'm in a gang, and they boast about it, not realizing that when they finally get arrested for the illicit activity they're doing, the prosecutor is going to go back and look at that post on Facebook or social media or anything else and say, wait a minute, you can't deny this now, here it is. And it's just, it, it's mind-blowing that people in- insist on bragging and using that bravado, not realizing that really all they're doing is incriminating themselves. Mm.
2: It's amazing sometimes the way in which the mind works, uh, especially those who are involved in criminal activity. You want to join us in our discussion. We have uh, Brian with us for a limited amount of time uh, this morning. Share your thoughts um, on what we've been talking about. You can 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. And we're talking with Brian Wagner. He's a former uh, senior prosecutor uh, for the district attorney's office in Brooklyn. He is a, a criminal defense attorney, uh, now uh, founder of Wagner Law Associates, which is based uh, here in the city. When we look at the way in which and the detail that is involved in investigating an incident like this, one of the things that you know a layperson probably thinks is, how do you even start? Where do you know how to start?
3: And I think that's where NYPD and the FBI's expertise comes into play. They are incredibly trained on this sort of thing. And so what I think they do is they start at the very epicenter of the incident. They start at the truck and they fan out from there. I I read reports that they recovered um, some notes that the alleged uh, person had written at the incident location. And so They read those notes. Then they look into his background, and when they look into his background, they find out who he does and doesn't associate with, and they interview those people. And if those bring up new leads, they interview the new leads, and they just let the investigation dictate what actually occurs. They don't go in with preconceived notions, and they allow it to just be an organic, natural consequence.
2: There's a lot of questions that I have. Hopefully some of the folks listening to us may want to join in with questions as well. 877-337-6666. Talking with Brian Wagner. And we're going to talk more with you, uh, Brian, also get into talking a little bit about some of those things that are being examined. Um, as part of the investigative process, too. Other questions as we continue this Sunday morning? It's Sunday morning on The Fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. We're in discussion with Brian Wagner on our program, this portion of it. Brian is a criminal defense attorney, a former uh, senior prosecutor for the district attorney's office in uh, Brooklyn, and he is in studio with us in this portion of our program Want to join us in our discussion? You can. WFAN's toll-free line is 877-337-6666. It's brought to you by Mohegan Sun. Unlimited possibilities await you at Mohegan Sun. Plan your stay at mohegansun.com. You know, as we look at this case and this attack, terrorist incident in lower Manhattan earlier this week, one of the things that I found interesting as I was preparing for this discussion today is there's a a case that you had uh, when you were working as a prosecutor that was similar to this. Can you take us through that? Yeah. The case I had as a prosecutor, it, it was similar in that the
3: motivation of the individual that conducted the attack were similar in that it's a random act of violence. In that case, a defendant mid-20s was speaking with multiple friends that he knew and police showed up. Mm-hmm. And although he's known these people for 20-plus years, he shoots them in the stomachs um, at point blank and he runs across and runs into a third friend, shoots that third friend in the stomach. Um, luckily, that, those three people survived, runs upstairs into an apartment building, shoots a fourth person jumps from a balcony to another balcony. And, and the analogy I was making with you off air is just that they're really that sort of mental mindset. There's no real understanding except to the fact, to the extent that you just have to kind of throw up your hands and say, there is no cure for that. And you have to just analyze the facts as they present themselves.
2: And in doing that... You know, you're you're calling on people to analyze that in their – to analyze it in a fact where – in a fashion where realistically they have to leave their emotion at the door. Absolutely. That's
3: got to be tough. Yeah. And and what you try to tell people is, you know, you're allowed to have sympathy. You should have sympathy. But your sympathy cannot dictate how you find the facts actually were. And sometimes that's the hardest part about being a juror. But that's what makes – the criminal justice system that we have, one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world, is that a lay a jury full of normal people put their emotions aside and just evaluate the facts and whether or not the government has proved accusations against someone. And you know, you you hope that where where people have those emotions, they are able to just look at the facts and allow the government to prove them or disprove them, and then a jury finds that without bias or sympathy.
2: We're talking with Brian Wagner on our program here on The Fan, this portion of it. I said what we'll do is try to work in some thoughts from some of the folks listening to us. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. Let's start with the folks on the phone here, Brian. Uh, First, we're going to –
4: is that – it's
2: A.J. and Hollis. A.J., good morning. Welcome to The Fan.
4: Well, uh, good morning. I was just a bit confused about why the attack in Manhattan was classified as a terrorist. Well, the gentleman, this attorney, said it was classified as terrorist, and but yet the uh, the Las Vegas, I believe he said maybe I, because I, I came in tail end. Maybe, I believe he said that the the attack in Las Vegas, he did not feel that it was a terrorist attack. Uh, am I correct? Did I did I hear it
2: correctly? Or? I'm gonna I'm gonna let him respond to you. <laughs> AJ, okay. thanks for calling.
3: So what I had said is the definition of terrorism is when a individual or a small group of individuals commit an act that is intended to create terror to a larger group. And so, yes. And so, with this incident in New York, it it seems clear based on the evidence that the NYPD and the mayor's office and other authorities and the governor's office have put forward that the intended message was to the rest of the United States and in uh, in the message of ISIS.
4: Now, Can you pause for one second? Absolutely, because I know where you're going. Um, but because the uh, the uh, the terrorist in uh, Las Vegas um, committed suicide, didn't he kill himself? Um, then we don't know what his motive was. But his I believe his motive was to fight in a lot of people and scare them. But I don't understand what the difference is.
3: Oh, I, I'm not taking an opinion one way or the other whether or not the Las Vegas mm-hmm. is an act of terrorism. I, I think you have a strong argument to say that it is domestic. Do you
4: feel Do you feel that the LV attack is an act of terrorism? I, yes or no?
3: So, unfortunately, yes. I can't give you a yes or no. I would have to know what his message to a larger, group okay. Do of
4: you feel this is a feeling? I'm asking you, not factual. Do you feel that it's act of terrorism? My my gut is yes. Okay, so then I must have misunderstood what you said earlier, because it seemed earlier that you said that you thought they were different.
3: No, just at this point, I don't think the authorities have um, categorized it as. Domestic terrorism. I'm not talking
4: about but, ca- authorities categorized. I'm talking about you personally. Oh, and, uh, and
3: that's what I was going to say. Although the authorities haven't necessarily categorized it, it, my general sense is that fits the definition of domestic terrorism, in, in my opinion.
4: The LV was an act of domestic terrorism, yes. Is that what you're saying? Yes. You're feeling Okay. Yes.
2: Thank you for okay. the call. Glad we can clarify that for you.
4: All right. Thank, Thank you. you.
2: Bye-bye. Adios. All right, next we go to uh, Ruby in Manhattan. Ruby, good morning. Thanks for holding on. Welcome to the fan.
4: Hi, no problem. How are you today?
2: Excellent. And yourself?
4: Good, thanks. So my question has to do with the recent terror attack. I'm I'm just a little confused about whether, as a terror suspect, this guy had to have his Miranda rights read, and if he didn't, what that might mean. So
3: that's interesting. I mean, the purpose of Miranda is whether or not statements can be used against you in the prosecution, the people, the government's case in chief, when they actually present evidence. What Miranda does not qualify for or limit is whether or not a statement can be used in cross-examination if a accused person decides to testify on their own behalf or any other limitations. So whether or not the suspect was given his Miranda rights one, I don't know. And two, there are many, many iterations where that wouldn't be necessary, many times when it wouldn't be necessary or legally required. In terms of this specific case, I, I, I don't know whether or not he was or was not given as Miranda, but oftentimes statements, even when not given under or after Miranda, are still useful to the investigation because it allows prosecutors, police, FBI, and other government authorities to know the motivation and the direction in which this individual was going. So the question is a great question. Unfortunately, I just don't know the answer whether or not he was given Miranda.
4: Why wouldn't he have to be given those rights?
3: Well, because again, Miranda talks about whether or not a statement would be allowed to be used by the government in his... In the, in the government's case, when they're actually presenting evidence to the jury. If the accused person testifies, then Miranda doesn't govern. What governs is whether or not the statement was voluntary or whether or not it was coerced, in other words, forced out of him. So Miranda is really just a mechanism for allowing the government to use the case in its own case-in-chief. And, and frankly, a lot of the times, a suspect's statement is not the best evidence against him or her. And so the government might not be concerned necessarily with preserving that ability to use the statement against him or her.
4: Gotcha. Thank you
2: so much. Thank you, Alrighty. Bye-bye. 877-337-6666 our number here at The Fan. Folks who are listening always take us in interesting directions here. When you look at... This case, look at the shooting or shootings, I should say, in Vegas. One of the discussions that always comes up is the idea of whether or not the gun laws are tough enough. Let's start first of all with how tough are the gun laws here in New York. So in New York City,
3: the gun laws are some of the most strict in the country. And when I say they're the most strict in the country, in New York City to get a carry permit, it's very, very difficult. And the jail sentences that are required by law, we're not even talking about uh, discretion in the court, are a minimum of three and a half years if you have a loaded weapon outside your home. Now, when it's inside your home, there's a different set of rules and a different set of laws. But the idea being that this is such a densely populated area, Mm -hmm. so many people living in New York City in close uh, quarters, that you don't necessarily want people out on the street having weapons that are not allowed to. And for that basis, the laws are, the jail sentences are very high. In other parts of the country, that reasoning doesn't apply. And Maybe for that reason and others, the gun laws are a little less strict.
2: It is also something that happens at um, the instance of a terror incident when people talk about the idea of punishment, okay? Um, And no matter what your view is, on our chief executive, President Trump certainly weighed in heavily uh, in favor of the idea of the death penalty uh, for the suspect. Um, obviously that in our country doesn't take place before somebody's actually tried and found guilty, um, but is, it, is that a fair discussion to take place in the country?
3: I think it's always a fair discussion. Where individuals come down on that, I think there are great arguments on both sides. If you're asking me personally whether or not I'm in favor of the death penalty, I've seen too many cases where the evidence is questionable, whether or not someone actually committed an act or not. And my own personal belief is if if the government wrongfully... Put someone to death just one time, that's enough to call the entire thing into question. But on the other hand, I understand people's um, frustrations and and people's absolute right to be up in arms about these sort of incidents. And I don't demean their discussion of the death penalty. It's just my own
2: personal belief that I don't believe it's the appropriate sentence. So in a case like this, if this individual is found guilty, then what do we do? I think there is no
3: good answer to that question, unfortunately. You know, complex questions have complex answers. In In this sort of case, what do you do with that person? I think you, just like we teach our kids to try to be the bigger man, the better person, I think as a country, that is what we want to do as well and show that, we understand that people have to, that as a country, we have to be better than the next. And it's not easy. It's not something that I think everyone is going to agree with.
2: But my own personal belief only is what I'm telling you, Mr. Bob. And, you know, as you say that, um, first of all, there's all kinds of reactions from people who are uh, listening to our discussion today, the people were agreeing with you, the people who are shouting at their radios, Absolutely. Um, <laughs> pounding their fists on their radios or whatever uh, at th- this uh, time too. But, you know, it does it naturally get reaction. It does naturally spark discussion. I mean it's just – it's part of the reaction, especially in the post-9-11 era that, that we have. I mean, it's simply a fact. Brian Wagner has been very kind to be with us uh, in studio on our program today. We've had a limited amount of time with him. Uh, he is a criminal defense attorney, a former senior prosecutor, at district attorney's office in Brooklyn, and um, he has his own uh, firm which is Wagner Law Associates. Now, the best way to reach your firm, I guess, is on the web with the website. Absolutely. So that's Wagner Law Associates. That's all as one word, dot com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. And uh, certainly the best with your day today. We've got a lot more to get to on our program this Sunday morning. Fan FM, New York. It's Sunday morning on The Fan, and good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. It's a busy program this morning, and we shift into a discussion about a topic that we have explored before on this program a couple of times. And it's a very timely discussion because there's an event that is taking place next week that we're going to be talking about. In the course of the discussion we're going to have, we're going to have a couple of different guests join us in this chat. Um, the first person who's online with us is a gentleman who we've spoken to before. His name is Todd Cohen. Uh, Todd is joining us to talk with us about uh, Purple Stride, New Jersey, and talk with us about the work of the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network. Uh, First of all, Todd, it's nice to talk
5: with you again. Bob, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Um, As someone who's not typically an athlete, this is really my only chance to be on WFAN, so um, (laughs) I'm grateful to you and uh, to everyone there for allowing us some time to talk about this very important topic.
2: It is an extremely important topic. Um, Let's do some background here. We'll get into talking about Purple Stride in New Jersey, but um, in talking about the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, I guess we have to begin as simply as possible. Can you describe, first of all, what's the pancreas?
5: Well, the the pancreas is uh, an organ that's located deep within the abdominal cavity. It's uh, behind the stomach, it's in front of the spine, um, and it produces digestive enzymes that help the body use and store energy and also regulate blood sugar levels. So typically, people that have issues with the pancreas uh, tend to be people who are diabetic, uh, who have trouble with regulating their sugar. Um, It's an organ that many people don't think about, and it's... It's something that um, when something does happen to you, it, it could cause some, some major issues. Um, my father had pancreatic cancer. Um, he passed away in 2002. And, you know, uh, diabetes is the furthest thing from our mind. But when he was affected by this disease, um, you know, the, the, the pancreas became a major, major thing for, for us in our lives. Um, he became insulin dependent. Um so uh you know that that's what the pancreas is and 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 like I said you, you typically don't think about it
2: How much did he know and did you know about pancreatic cancer when he was diagnosed?
5: so he was diagnosed in two thousand and one um and my father was an anatomy anatomy and physiology professor at a local community college mm-hmm. um so he knew a lot about it but myself and the rest of the family thought it was just another type of cancer. We knew Michael Landon had it, but other than that, you know, we were completely, completely lost. There was not a lot of information out there for us. Um, we, we reached out to several oncologists. Um, he was treated, but, um, uh, like many people that are fighting this disease, um, he was unable to fight a valiant battle, but, um, the information that we had was very limited back then.
2: Is it better now in terms of the information that's that's available and also how skeptical do we have to be about information that's online?
4: Well, I mean, you always have to be
5: very, very careful. Um, if you know somebody, and I'm going to say this pretty much throughout this, uh, that is fighting this disease, uh, I urge you to go to PANCAN.org, um, the organization, and that's P-A-N-C-A-N.org,
0: the organization
5: that I volunteer for is called the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, and there are a ton of resources out there. Um, not a lot of medical professionals are aware of, of the information's out there. Um, we have uh, clinical trials that you might be eligible for. There's a, a patient central service where patients and caregivers can give access to uh, pancreatic cancer specialists near them. We have a survivor network where uh, survivors can reach out to other people that are currently fighting this disease. Um, as someone that's in, the north, uh, that's in the New Jersey affiliate, we have a number of volunteers, and um, I, I, I want to state the importance of, of early detection, and I know that's a very tricky thing with this disease because currently there is really no viable early detection, but if you can um, somehow catch this early, and uh, and and beat this thing. Um, you know, we we urge you to to help others, and and that's what I'm doing after losing my father uh, about 15 years ago.
2: Purple Stride, New Jersey. How do you describe what that is, Todd?
5: So Purple Stride, New Jersey, and Bob, you've been with us much of this way. I mean, it's been so long. The Yankees were winning World Series when <laughs> when we started doing this. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> Um, so Purple Stride New Jersey is a chance for, for people that have been affected with this disease to come together, to wear purple, and to come out on November 12th. Uh, it's, in, uh, it's at the Mac Business Campus in Parsippany, um, and that's one campus drive. Uh, we have a registration starting at 7.30 a.m. At 9 a.m. is the opening ceremonies, and then we have a 5K walk and run at 9.30 a.m. I, as somebody that's so passionate about... Ending this disease, um, I can't say enough for, for people that, that want to come out and get information and learn about pancreatic cancer. We have uh, the timed walk uh, and the timed run uh, for adults is $35. Uh, for um, untimed uh, adults, it's um, $30, and that's the day of. But you can go to purplestride.org uh, backslash uh, New Jersey or forward slash New Jersey and learn more about this event.
2: All right. now i 've got to ask the obvious question as well, why purple stride
5: well our fa- our founder her name is uh, Pamela a Marcott um, she and I can never pronounce her name, so I apologize <laughs> but uh, she lost her mom to pancreatic cancer um, you know uh, about twenty years ago, and um, her mom 's favorite color was purple mm-hmm. so she kind of started this organization in California, you know, many, many years ago. And, uh, you know, that's the main reason why, why we have purple as a color. Um, November 16th is World Pancreatic Cancer Day. So we urge everybody to wear purple. You'll see purple on news anchors. You'll see purple all over the place. Um, you can learn more information about that by going to the website, pancan.org.
2: And when you talk about the organization, the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, are there events through, throughout the year?
5: So this is our this is our big event, um, November sixteenth. Um, there's also a Purple Stride that usually occurs in April in New York City, um, and you can go to purplestride.org um, to learn more about that event as well. We kind of space them out very well. It's usually six months apart. Um, and there's also an event that takes place, it's called Purple Light. It's a free event that takes place in Warren, New Jersey, um, at Camp Harmony, and that's on April uh, 29th um, at, at, at night. It's a, it's a much more low-key kind of um, event where people join together and we read names of people that are fighting pancreatic cancer and uh, we remember those that have fought um, have fought their battles against pancreatic cancer. And every time a name is read, we crack a glow stick. And we're standing in a room that's surrounded by people in purple lights. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very powerful event um, that takes place in, in April. Um, so those are the two major events. And then we also have um, an advocacy day where we head to Washington, D.C., and we ask our local congressmen, to do something about pancreatic cancer, to to raise funding, to raise awareness. And then we have thousands of people throughout the country that call in to make our voices even louder. Um, It's so important to not only raise awareness and raise money for this disease, um, but to let our local politicians know that pancreatic cancer has been um, overlooked for so many years with a survival rate of only... Nine uh, percent. It's it's in the single digits. It's the third leading cause of cancer death in the United States. Something needs to be done to to eradicate this disease.
2: Would you introduce Franco as well for us? He's joining us now.
5: Sure. Uh, Franco uh, Jurisic is 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 one of our our symbols of hope. He's our advocacy chair. Um, does so much for our organization. Is. So powerful and, and, and I, I said to you, Bob, it's kind of appropriate that he's, he's on the show today because mm-hmm. he ran the New York City Marathon um, a couple of years ago to mark his five year anniversary, uh, and I believe he's a um, you know uh, an eight year survival right now, and, and we're so happy that he's part of our affiliate.
2: Franco, welcome to our discussion on the fan.
1: Thank you thank you. Good morning. Thanks good for having me.
2: Good morning. Um, lots of thoughts come to my mind. Um, take us back to the time and chronologically, when was it that you were diagnosed?
1: Yeah. So for, uh, my kind of adventure started in 2008, it was, uh, October, mid October, and it was a few weeks before the New York marathon. So I was in, in good shape. I was 42 years old and, uh, the first kind of tip off that something was, was wrong was uh i noticed that my uh pardon me for saying my urine was getting yellow uh which is as it turns out uh one of the one of the signs uh is that you get jaundice and so that's what what was happening to me at the time i thought gee maybe i'm just not hydrating enough um so i you know drank more and and kind of kept an eye on things um what happened is over the next couple of weeks uh, i I went to see uh, one doctor and then another, and they did a series of tests, and with each, with each result it was like, gee, your liver's fine, thank God, your kidneys are fine, thank God you don't have hepatitis, you know, and with each thing I thought, okay, that's, that's great, um, until I went on the uh, internet and looked up, gee, you know, what could this be, and that's when I started learning about pancreatic cancer, so um, I was diagnosed on Halloween. Of 2008 um, and uh, in the next month kind of learned I took a crash course uh, about the disease and and what's involved uh, I was blessed to be uh, a candidate for what's called a Whipple procedure my, the tumor was in the head of my pancreas and uh, I was as I mentioned, blessed uh, to be able to have this Whipple procedure, which is where they remove the the uh, tumor and uh, and your gallbladder and, and a bunch of other things, and kind of amazingly reconnect everything uh, so that things can can work. And I had that Whipple procedure on December 1st, uh, and that was followed by six months of chemo and radiation. and uh, And I've been thankfully uh, I've been good ever since. Um, and I, although I did not run the marathon in 2008, uh, since I was diagnosed just a couple of days before the event, uh, I, I did sign up again the following year. And, and once I was done with my chemo and radiation trained and was able to run the marathon the, the following year in 2009. So, um, so mine is kind of the best case scenario of, uh, of, of what can happen. Um, unfortunately, like Todd, I also know the other, the other more likely outcome, which is my dad was diagnosed uh, three years uh, after me, and uh, he passed away just seven weeks after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So, so that is unfortunately uh, the more typical scenario, as Todd mentioned. In the absence of some kind of screening tool, you know, something uh, akin to a mammography, a mammogram, or a colonoscopy, um, folks do not realize that they, that they have this disease, um, often, uh, until, until it's too late. Um, so if, uh, I guess I would stress, you know, if you're having, uh, unexplained weight loss, uh, lower back pain, uh, jaundice, um, you know, loss of appetite, things like that, uh, get yourself checked out and, and be very diligent with, with, uh, you know, with what they're looking for in the testing um, because, because this is uh, a disease that doctors may not see for, for a while. I mean, it's, it, it happens too often, but it's still considered one of the more rare cancers. Uh, it, it just happens that it's, you know, once you're diagnosed, um, the, you know, the prognosis uh, is, is not what we'd like it to be, and so that's what, what we're working hard to change.
2: We only got about a minute here before we have to pause, but what does it mean for you to be a survivor?
1: Yeah. So, uh that is a that is a, a heavy question because um you know, on on the one hand, this is something that that uh the same way the disease kind of happened to me, uh survivorship uh also happened to me. I I was lucky that that it that the was where it was, and then it manifested in the way that it did. Um, but having been uh, blessed, if you will, with that, uh, I feel I feel a responsibility. Um, there aren't that many survivors. It's wonderful to see every day more and more. Um, I go to events and I meet more and more survivors all the time. Um, but there's still way too few of us. And so those of us that are around, uh, need to need to kind of pick up the torch and, and change the course of this disease, so that um, you know my children, for instance, do not face the same kind of dim odds that their father and grandfather faced when it comes to pancreatic cancer.
2: Very interesting discussion that we are having. A couple of guests have joined us on our program from the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, Pan Can. That's P A N C A N. Dot org, the uh, website um, that Todd had mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, Purple Stride, New Jersey, taking place next Sunday, the 12th. We'll give you detailed information and contact information uh, on that as well. And uh, Todd Cohen, Franco Jurissic talking with us on our program. And um, we've got a lot more to get to as we share some of the story of Purple Stride,